Dear Father, thank you so much, Father, for your grace poured out on this ministry and on those who have uh, made their lives a part of this ministry, Father. Thank you for uh, just the whole opportunity to serve you in any capacity. Who are we, Father, that you could use us? And who are we that we could uh, add anything to your glory and to your uh, strength and wisdom and to the power of what you can do in your own creation. And, and the answer, Father, clearly is we, we don't add anything at all. Uh, that's not why you ask us to join in, in the work that you give us. And uh, we're so thankful, Father, that you have good reasons to grow your, your children through this opportunity to serve you and that you give us these, these ways in which we can know you and, and serve you better. And uh, the success we've seen this last weekend, Father, what, what measure of success we did have, it was entirely due to your grace. And uh, in your grace, we seek to endeavor to do more. And uh, tonight, Father, is one of those moments along that path where we prepare ourselves for what you will give us to do in the future. And I know, Father, it's so often the case we look at the text and we understand it and we wonder about it, but we can't begin to comprehend how you'll put it to work in our lives. I just ask, Lord, that you would uh, be speaking to us tonight in ways that will prepare us properly. Help us stay attentive, Father. If we're drifting off, help us um, remain focused on you in some some way that we will uh, continue to have a, a desire to know and a hunger to, to hear. Give us an opportunity to put it to use, Father. Let us be the men and women who are prepared for good works and that we take those works seriously as we seek to serve you. And uh, make the most of this night. One night in our week, Father, but it, it's a night you prepared. So we consider it with eternal consequences. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we move into chapter 8, and with it, a new section in the book of 1 Samuel. We're ending one section and beginning the next, and at the same time, we're ending the historical period of Judges. Now, this isn't the book of Judges, you knew that, but the first seven chapters of this book overlap the period of the Judges, the last period of the Judges that's recorded in the book of Judges. And that period is a period in which men did what was right in their own eyes. Which is to say they're not doing what is right in God's sight. That refrain shows up so often in the book of Judges because Samuel, who wrote that book, wanted people to understand the historical backdrop from which the kings of Israel rise. And so the entire Jewish society during the time of Judges, which is a little over 300 years of Israel's history, goes from bad to worse in that period. And even when a judge is raised up by God at points along that path in order to direct his people out of ungodliness and toward righteousness, the effect of that judge is temporary at best in every case. In the end, as you look at the end of the book of Judges or in the last seven chapters we just read, you find that the people are rebelling more and more to even greater degrees than they did in times past, despite the fact that God is doing what he will in grace to bring a judge or to bring a prophet. Now the best proof we have of how far Israel has fallen in obedience to God's commands is just to look at the children of the people who are leading in Israel at this time. And you remember earlier in this book we looked at the high priest Eli and his sons. And of course his sons were this terrible example of ungodliness and of corruption among the people of Israel. They were charged with leading Israel from the tabernacle and yet they were the chief offenders against the law. And those men eventually met their fate, as Eli did as well. And because of their corrupt influence, the people themselves were put in jeopardy. We studied all of that. Now today, we're going to see the rise of Samuel, 
as the man of God, after seeing him last week, convinced the people to listen to the word of God, to rise up in obedience, and they saw the outcome, defeating the Philistines. Now this prophet of God is going to settle into his job as judge of Israel, directing the people to follow the Lord. And naturally you're going to assume, and I would assume, that Samuel's rise to being this judge would have led to a happy ending of sorts to the story of the period of Judges. At least at the end of it all, they came to their senses, they came to realize that they needed to follow the Lord. Well, not so fast, because as chapter 8 opens, you're going to see this shocking result, which reminds us of how truly evil the time of Judges was. Look at verses 1 through 3, just to open up the chapter. And it came about when Samuel was old, that he appointed his sons judges over Israel. Now the name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah, They were judging in Beersheba. His sons, however, did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after dishonest gain and took bribes and perverted justice. So at the end of Samuel's life, he has grown sons. And at a point in their life, they're ready to assume responsibility as judges. And so Samuel appoints them as such. Now his sons are called Joel and Abijah. These are the men, we're told, who judged in Beersheba. That's southern Judah. And you would think... If anyone was able to raise godly sons, it would have been Samuel, right? But in verse 2, you hear that these sons are no better, really, than Eli's sons. And presumably they start out right. Otherwise, you wouldn't have expected Samuel to entrust a judgeship to them, certainly. But in verse 2, you notice it says specifically, they turned aside. In other words, they came into power and then saw the opportunity to benefit themselves once they came into power. They pursued dishonest gain, like bribes, extortion, or whatever. They perverted justice, which means they gave favorable judgment to those who made a payment over those who actually deserved the judgment. Right? You could buy your way to whatever you wanted with these guys. So how does his sons, how does Samuel's sons come to this surprising end? Do we blame Samuel, for example, like we did Eli back in the earlier chapters? Well, if you'll notice, in this case, the scripture makes no critique of Samuel, unlike Eli. There's no indication, implicit or explicit, that Samuel deserves any blame for this outcome. Instead, the text seems very clear that they are grown, and they turn aside, that is, they make a decision as a grown adult to go against what they know is right, after they're in the positions that they've been put in. So if Eli's sons can be an example of bad parenting, and I think they are, then Samuel's sons are a reminder to good parents that you cannot produce perfect children. Ultimately, the reach of a parent has limits, and you see it here. So where do we go to explain this dramatic term? We really haven't done that yet. All we're doing is exonerating Samuel for the moment. Where do you go? Well, the answer is central to these chapters in 1 Samuel, the next three chapters of 1 Samuel. That's why Samuel, interestingly, who wrote this, made clear his son's problem. This period of Jewish history is, as I said, the time of Judges. It is so double-minded, it is so without godly direction, that not even a godly judge's own sons can persist in doing God's will. This is the nature of the times. When Samuel was writing the book of Judges, and he penned that well-known phrase that I've mentioned already, I wonder if he was thinking of his sons when he wrote that, that everyone did what was right in their own eyes. His sons did what was right in their own eyes, not according to his father's eyes. That's the situation that brings us to the point of chapter 8 in 1 Samuel. 
The people are beyond reach by any judge. Even their judges are without integrity. Even the people themselves are such that they recognize there's no hope for them if they're going to continue to be overseen by these corrupt kind of men. So they demand a king. And that's where we go now in verse 4. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. And they said to him, Behold, you've grown old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint a king for us to judge us like all the nations. But the thing was displeasing in the sight of Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. The Lord said to Samuel, Listen to the voice of the people in regard to all they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Like all the deeds which they have done since the day I brought them up from Egypt, even to this day, in that they have forsaken me and served other gods, so they are doing to you also. Now then, listen to their voice. However, you shall solemnly warn them and tell them of the procedure of the king who will reign over them. I'll stop there just for a moment before we look at the procedure. The elders have come, seeing what was going on with his sons, and they realize this is not going to go well for us. Well, we're not going to tolerate a whole generation of their leadership, knowing what they're capable of. And their concern is not unreasonable, frankly. And their protests are not really the problem. In other words, the very fact that they have said that they need something better than what they have, in and of itself, is not a problem. Not a sin. And everything they've said is accurate. You've grown old, which is a nice way of saying you're not going to rule us forever. And God forbid your sons are left in authority over us. That's basically what they're saying. And everything about that is very reasonable. But then the problem is not how they identify the issue. The problem is the solution they propose. The elders ask Samuel to appoint a king over Israel to rule the people. And here's where they begin to go wrong. Because they ask for a change of authority from God ruling over his people to human kings ruling over the people. And then, secondly, look at the reasoning they give for that proposal. They want a solution like every other nation. They want a king so they can be just like the world. Forgetting, of course, that God intended Israel to be a nation that was distinct and separate from all the other nations in the world. So they point to Samuel's sons as the problem, but they're really using that, in a sense, as an excuse for getting what they really have wanted for a long time. The problem is they want a king. And in fact, if you go back into the story of Judges and look at what the people did during that period of time, there's two other events, two other times in the book of Judges when the people demand a king. Once they tried to get Gideon to become king, and Gideon turned it down. And then Gideon's successor, Abimelech, made an attempt to become king, and he was thwarted at it. So the people have twice before indicated an interest in this. They just didn't get it. Now they're back at it. Now Samuel hears this, and of course Samuel's not happy. We hear that. Samuel's not happy because he knows they're making a very rash, poorly thought out, ungodly choice. In verse 6, it says, The thing was displeasing to Samuel. But the word in Hebrew for displeasing is ra, R-A-A, which is the word for evil or wicked. So the request is evil because it amounts to a rejection of the Lord. It amounts to saying we don't want the Lord's ruling anymore. We don't want it coming through judges anymore. We want to do it in a whole new way of our own desire. But who's in charge right now? Samuel. Why are they saying they don't want to be under judges? Because Samuel and more importantly his sons are a problem. And so Samuel worries for what the Lord is going to say in response to the failure of his leadership, or so it would seem, right? So they are asking for the wrong solution, and I think a bit of the displeasure that Samuel is experiencing comes from his association with the problem. Now, I'm saying they came up with the wrong solution because there was another one they didn't ask for. The other solution would have been, get us a different judge. 
Your judges, your sons, are not going to be over us. They're corrupt. You've raised corrupt sons, or they've turned corrupt, whichever. And now we want better. That would not have been rejecting the Lord. That would have been acknowledging that the Lord was not well served by who was in authority. But if truth be told, the people have been rejecting his authority for a long time. And that's the Lord's point in response to Samuel. They have rebelled against every judge who has ever ruled over them. They do what is right in their own eyes, not in God's sight. And so this is just the final straw of all of that rebellion that is marked the entire time since Joshua brought them into the land. This is nothing new. That's why judges in 1 Samuel fought up against each other, not just because they're historically of the same period, but one explains the other. This is the wickedness of men's hearts. It's true for all mankind. Nothing can tame the sin of men. And what the Bible has taught us from literally Genesis all the way to 1 Samuel is you cannot control or tame the sin of men by law, not by judges, not even by kings, as you're soon going to find. That the solution cannot be found on earth among men. That's where the, the story is leading us inevitably. Meanwhile, the Lord answers here. And I think there's a measure of mercy and pity for the people, even in the answer, because he doesn't do what he did to Moses, right? At one point he says, how about I just wipe all these people out and we start over? You might have imagined a similar response under the circumstances, because it's almost exactly the same thing they're doing as the people in Moses' day did. And Samuel's worry, I think, is part of that, that he might be assigned some blame. But the Lord reassures Samuel first, and I think that's why he does so, because of Samuel's personal concerns. He says, don't worry, Samuel, they're not rejecting you. In other words, they are not rejecting your leadership. They're not saying you haven't done your job. They may use those words, or it may be what they're claiming, but in truth it's a deeper issue than that. They are rejecting me in the way that they have continually strayed in their hearts, and this is just one more example of the same. And in verse 8, the Lord gives this synopsis of the history of what they've done ever since Joshua. He says they've never been a people to obey or respect the word of God, at least not for very long. They forsake the Lord continually. They chase after other gods. And so all Samuel is experiencing now is exactly the same thing the Lord has known since the beginning. You could almost imagine God saying something like, tell me about it, or what else is new? Once again, though, notice the Lord does not say Samuel's sons are the problem, or that Samuel shares any of the blame. And and that reaffirms for us here that we could draw a different conclusion concerning his sons than we might have been willing to draw about Eli's sons. Samuel's sons are just a distraction from the real problem. The real problem is the people's hearts. That in other words, even if Samuel's sons had been perfect judges, the people would still have wanted a king anyway. And they would have eventually strayed from even the the most perfect judge in their hearts. We know that because they give as their reason, not the reasons of the problem of judges, they give as their reason, we want to be like other nations. When God's people make their goal aligning with the world over following the Lord, by definition we forsake the Lord and we reject his authority. Although I know at times we may not realize that's what we're doing. We don't think of it in those terms. But in the Bible's terms, pursuing the world or obeying the Lord are literally opposites. It's an all or none proposition, and you're either one or you're the other. You either are accepting the authority of the Lord, and you are following Him with your heart, or you're following after the world. Which is why the Lord equates seeking a king like the other nations with rejecting Him. So the people don't know this, right? They don't realize how sinful their hearts are. They don't know that they've been led astray by their hearts. And that's the nature of sin, because when sin is conceived, that is, when we first imagine ourselves doing something we prefer, the plan seems perfect. And it seems so because our flesh responds to it in an eager anticipation. We don't see the negatives of it. All that our body tells us, our flesh in any sense, is that it's good for us. That's why we desire it. 
But friends, your flesh lies. That's the central problem. The central conceit of sin is that it's a lie. First from the enemy, now to ourselves. And it's only after sin gives birth to some kind of action that you will eventually come to understand the consequences of what your sin produces in your life. And yet in mercy, the Lord offers the people here a chance to understand their consequences in advance. That's where we go next. You're going to have to explain to the people everything they're going to see happen to them when they put one man, only one guy, in authority over everyone with the right to do whatever he wants. In other words, they're so self-deceived concerning the sin of their hearts, they can't even look ahead far enough to understand what happens when one sinful man has all the authority he wants, right? That's what monarchies are like, by definition, because a king has no equal in the land. And if the Lord anoints a king, then the Lord will ensure that that person's power is unchallenged, at least until such time as the Lord decides. And as the saying goes, power corrupts. But absolute power corrupts absolutely. And a king is absolute power personified. So Samuel's about to explain the consequences of what's going to come upon them if they choose to go down the route of monarchy, human monarchy. Verse 10. So Samuel spoke all the words of the Lord to the people who had asked of him a king. He said, This will be the procedure of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and place them for himself in his chariots and among his horsemen, and they will run before his chariots. He will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and of fifties, and some to do his plowing and to reap his harvest and to make his weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will also take your daughters for perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and your vineyards and your olive groves and give them to his servants. He will take a tenth of your seed and of your vineyards and give to his officers and to his servants. He will also take your male servants and your female servants and your best young men and your donkeys and use them for his work. He will take a tenth of your flocks, and you yourselves will become his servants. Then you will cry out in that day because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. Now you would think this might cause you to pause. You know, even if just like, did we hear that right? Can we read that again, please? The Lord says, and this is all through Samuel, of course, but it's the Lord speaking with a warning. He says, first, I'll just run through it quickly. The king needs an army, right? You've got to have an army to protect your reign. Well, where's the warrior going to come from? Well, the warriors are going to come from the people he rules over, right? And that means mothers and fathers give up sons in great numbers to an army and then sent off to wherever the king wants, put in harm's way, dying on the battlefield, all of this at the whim of a king. And then, secondly, he needs servants, he needs workers, he needs to sustain this lifestyle of an all-powerful monarch. That means he's going to have teams of men who are going to be ordered to plow and harvest fields for the king. And where would those people have normally been if they hadn't been doing that for the king? Where are sons usually? In the fields of the father. So who's going to plow those fields now? Well, the point is it's taking something off of the family's ability to care for itself. And then he's going to need other workers to make all the equipment for the sovereign. And then the daughters and the kitchens and the palaces and so on. And where is all the food going to come from to feed all these people that are working for the king? Well, he's got to go take all this from the farms. So from the people in the farms, he's going to come and he's going to tax all of these people and take their land and take their produce. And when you can't pay the taxes, he says you're going to become indentured servants. In summary, you're going to have sinful human royalty acting like a parasite, which... Only takes the best, by the way. No no monarch is content with less than the best. So taking the best from whatever he can. The people then will become servants living to serve a king rather than the other way around. And that's the point. They want a king because they expect the king will be good news for them. 
that the king will serve them, the king will take care of their needs, and they forget that in the sin of human hearts, that's not how it works. The people serve the king. The king is the beneficiary, not the people, at least in the grand scheme of things. And because they reject the Lord, he says, you're going to know all these things. Because you reject the leadership of a God who has your best interests at heart and has given you all that is necessary for life and godliness, but in place of that you want the judgment of men who have only sinful desires as their root motivation, and you're going to expect things to get better. This is revealing the way in which sin works in twisting the truth into lies in our minds. The weight of that expense, the deprivation that it's going to result in is all going to be a reality for these people. And then at the end of the day, when they come to see this for themselves, not that they didn't get the warning in advance, but still, somehow it went over their head. When they experience it, they're going to cry out and God's going to say, it's not going to change things at that point. I have put a monarch in place and it's going to stay there. How predictable. They ask for the wrong thing, for the wrong reasons, and the Lord, in mercy, tells them in advance why that's a bad idea. And yet they're going to persist and eventually they're going to know all of what the Lord is saying to them. And then they're going to cry out as if they're the victims. And if they are the victims, well then they're the victims of their own disobedience. Verse 19, Nevertheless, the people refused to listen to the voice of Samuel. And they said, No, but there shall be a king over us, that we may also be like all the nations, that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. Now after Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the Lord's hearing. And the Lord said to Samuel, Listen to their voice and anoint them a king. So Samuel said to the men of Israel, Go every man to his city. Now if it wasn't clear enough already, the people repeat their explanation that they want a king because they want to be like every other nation. They want a king to judge them, go out before them, lead them and fight their battles. What's the motivation at the end of the day? The motivation is we want to be the strongest nation among those around us. The goal here is to defend themselves against what has been a repeated pattern over the last 300 years of enemies coming into the land and uh, subjugating the people of Israel. And they're tired of the pattern. We want a king to finally defend us so that we don't have to deal with all these neighbors. But if you know the story of Judges, why were they ever in that predicament to begin with? It was disciplined by the Lord. He had sent those nations in precisely because they weren't listening to him and following the law. They were worshiping idols. So here again, they're ignorant of their own contribution to their problem. They think that it's about getting a human leader in front of this problem so that we don't have to suffer these incursions anymore. And yet, those incursions come because the Lord has brought them due to sin. Is a human king going to stop that pattern? No. It's going to continue to happen. In fact, Nebuchadnezzar comes in ultimately and lays waste to the whole place, even though there was a king. This is not going to solve the problem they think it's going to solve. They want a king to judge them, to go up before them, to lead them and fight those battles. Each of those roles, though, was to be fulfilled by the Lord himself, and he has already demonstrated that he's more than capable of doing so in each case. The Lord has judged Israel through the law. He has gone out before Israel in the wanderings, and he fought Israel's enemies under Joshua. So all the things they want, the Lord's already demonstrated he can do far better than men. But what's the contingent? The contingency is they have to have faith and obedience to what his word requires. This is the typical pattern of sinful men. I do not want to do what God said. I'll do it my own way. And we get all the consequences that follow. Ultimately, all of these things they want do come to Israel, as God has promised, under the person of Christ when he sets up his kingdom. short passage from Micah tells us exactly this. When Micah looks forward in time to the kingdom and sees the Messiah arrive, here's what he writes. It will come about in the last days that the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains. It will be raised above the hills and the people 
will stream to it. That's the word people in Hebrew is, is goyim. The Gentiles will stream to it. Many Gentiles, nations, will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us about his ways, that we may walk in his paths. For from Zion will go forth the law, even the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And he will judge, there's the word, judge between many peoples and render decisions for mighty distant nations. They will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation and never again will they train for war. Each of them will sit under his vine and under his fig tree with no one to make them afraid. For the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. Though all the peoples walk each in the name of his God, as for us, we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. So until that day comes, kings are going to be incapable of administering righteousness or bringing peace. It's just not possible. So Samuel passes the word to the Lord. It's sort of an odd thing, isn't it? He had to repeat this for the hearing of the Lord. I don't know why he didn't think the Lord had heard it already. My guess is, for accountability amongst the people, there was a kind of handoff. Lord, this is what they said. Specifically, the Lord then tells Samuel to do what? To listen to their voice. In other words, not only is Samuel going to follow the request in granting them a king, but he's also to follow their desires in the kind of person he appoints. So the Lord's going to bring Samuel a man who fits the people's expectations to a T. The Lord knows the people's hearts. He knows what they're seeking, wrong as it is. He's intending to give them exactly what they want, only to prove to them the mistake of it. And so he's going to deliver a candidate who is a perfect match for their expectations. But of course, this is going to be the people's own undoing. And so in the process, the Lord can teach them a lesson. Samuel tells them, go back to your cities, which is a way of saying, we're done here. Go home. Await the Lord's decision on this matter. Await for him to appoint the king that we are all waiting for. Verse 1 of chapter 9. Now, there was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, the son of Zerar, the son of Becherath, the son of Aphiah, the son of Benjamite, a mighty man of valor. He had a son whose name was Saul, a choice and handsome man. And there was not a more handsome person than he among the sons of Israel. From his shoulders and up, he was taller than any of the people. So chapter 9 is the story of how we get to the first king of Israel, the selection of a Benjamite named Saul. And right from the start, we learn that Saul comes straight from central casting. He's exactly the kind of guy you want to play the part of king. At least as far as external appearances are concerned. He comes from an excellent Benjamite stock. We're told he's a descendant of a mighty man of valor. So it'd be like saying this is the great-grandson of uh, George Washington. There's already, oh, that guy's probably going to do great. Assumption. Saul's name means asked for of God. And to put it simply, he's a hunk. He is literally, according to scripture, the most handsome man in Israel. Which I find to be a fascinating statement because... How can the Word of God make such a judgment? You would think that it would be totally subjective, right? But apparently, according to the Word of God, Saul was number one among all Israel in the category of attractiveness. The other interesting detail is he stood a full head taller than anyone else in Israel. That's also not exaggeration. These are meant to be taken literally. So no one in Israel is within even a head's height of his height. So no matter what crowd you're in, he's going to be the tall guy. Later, you're going to learn that he's in his late 20s which would seem perfectly suited to the people's desires as well, right? Vigorous and young enough to do the job and all the rest. He is literally, again, I'll use that word, literally the perfect example of what men expect when they imagine a king. They want someone who looks the part. Because men and women judge 
according to the flesh, according to our own desires, according to what we can see. I mean, that's how we work. Even though a part of us may know better, that doesn't change the reality of how we think. And God's ways, as you know, are not man's ways. And that's why the Lord chose to bring Christ into the world in such a humble and lowly way, according to Scripture. Nothing about his earthly appearance would attract the flesh, we're told. Isaiah 53 says, Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hid their face. He was despised and we did not esteem him. God chose to endow Christ with this utterly humble appearance. In fact, based on some of the things Isaiah says in that chapter, you could go so far as to say he might have been a bit ugly by human standards. Why would God do that to the Lord? He did it to mock man's foolishness in the way that we judge by looks. So in other words, if you saw Christ in that day, you had nothing about his physical appearance to convince you of what his words were telling you. In some sense, you had to, very much so, go against your flesh, override your nature, the sinful side of you, to accept the word of God. By design, God did that. And the story of Saul is a classic account of this kind of folly of running after what looks the part without any consideration of what's below the surface. And so now we watch as the Lord directs Saul to Samuel's attention, puts the two men together so that the people will get just what they wanted. Verse 3. Now, the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. So Kish said to his son Saul, Take now with you one of the servants and arise. Go search for the donkeys. He passed through the hill country of Ephraim and passed through the land of Shalisha, but they did not find them. Then they passed through the land of Shalim, but they were not there. Then he passed through the land of the Benjamites, but they did not find them. When they came to the land of Zuth, Saul said to his servant who was with him, Come and let us return, or else my father will cease being concerned about the donkeys and will become anxious for us. He said to him, Behold now, there is a man of God in this city, and the man is held in honor. All that he says surely comes true. Now let us go there. Perhaps he can tell us about our journey on which we have set out. Then Saul said to his servant, But behold, if we go, what shall we bring the man? For the bread is gone from our sack, and there is no present to bring to the man of God. What do we have? The servant answered Saul again and said, Behold, I have in my hand a fourth of a shekel of silver. I will give it to the man of God, and he will tell us our way. Formerly in Israel, when a man went to inquire of God, he used to say, Come, and let us go to the seer. For he who is called a prophet now was formerly called a seer. Then Samuel said to his servant, Well said, come, let us go. So they went to the city where the man of God was. As they went up the slopes to the city, they found young women going out to draw water and said to them, Is the seer here? They answered them and said, He is. See, he is ahead of you. Hurry now, for he has come into the city today, for the people have a sacrifice on the high place today. As soon as you enter the city, you will find him before he goes up to the high place to eat, for the people will not eat until he comes, because he must bless the sacrifice. Afterward, those who are invited will eat. Now, therefore, go up, for you will find him at once. So they went up to the city. As they came into the city, behold, Samuel was coming out toward them to go to the high place. So in a twist of irony, the Lord directs Saul to Samuel through a search of his own, for a donkey in this case, or donkeys. And Saul's search reveals a number of things about his character. That's part of the reason why we have this story. You get a sense of who this guy is at the early point in his life, at this beginning stage of his time in the story. 
you can notice things like, for example, he's willing to serve his father in a devoted and sacrificial way, I would argue. I mean, he, he searches for donkeys. That's one thing. But the distance he goes is, is quite remarkable. The circuit that you just saw traced out is about 35 miles through hill country, through difficult terrain. So that shows us something about his character, that he's willing to do that. Secondly, he's aware of the societal customs. He knows that there's a man of God that nearby and he shouldn't go empty-handed to this man. He should bring something for him. And then there's that little parenthetical statement by Samuel. Samuel wants you to understand that in this day and age, this is really coming out of the time of Judges again, people perceived a man from God to be a seer, almost like a diviner or a fortune teller, and not necessarily in a godly way. And that's the sense that Saul is having of Samuel now. That's why that comment is given to us, so that we understand in Saul's mind, he doesn't see Samuel as this wonderful prophet of the living God. He simply knows him as a diviner, a seer. And not particularly well, you might notice. He doesn't really know who Samuel is. And then he does know the custom, though. You can't go to a guy like that empty-handed. I mean, what they do, they do for a living. You show up without money, you're not going to get a fortune. Of course, Samuel is not a seer, as he clarifies. He's a true prophet of God, but that's what Samuel thinks. Thirdly, he does have a humility to stop and ask a woman for directions, something that a lot of men can't do even today. (laughs) But in this culture, it was a particularly difficult thing for a man to seek assistance from a strange woman. That was a humbling act on his part, and yet he was willing to do it. That piece in the story is central to the passage I just read because it's going to come up again. Late in Saul's life... He will seek counsel from a woman again, and it will show the difference between where he started and where he ended. We'll come back later to that. But overall, we're introduced to Saul here as a man with great potential, seemingly a good heart, seemingly a guy who has lots of capability. But friends, that in itself is exactly the danger of judging with your eyes, rather than relying on the Lord's counsel. Because even when you and I are looking at someone with good insight, seeing them in an honest and transparent way, what you can never know is the inner workings of their heart and the future. And because you can't tell their heart perfectly, and because you don't know the future for that person, you don't know how they're going to respond to stress or temptation or success or failure. So no matter what you can see in them today, can't begin to prepare you for what might happen in the future. How many people have been injured or hurt by a pastor who has fallen from grace, fallen from their stature because of some sin that no one saw coming, that everyone could never imagine that guy was capable of, right? That's the reason why we don't put our faith in people. We put it in the Lord alone. And that's why we don't want to judge people that the Lord has given us insight on through Scripture. He knows the hearts. He knows the future. So we can trust His counsel. You trust His counsel. You're never wrong. But these people aren't interested in trusting God's Word, right? That's the whole point. They have their own plan and they're going to judge with their eyes. And so God brings them something that will appeal immediately to their eyes. Finally, it's interesting that this man, Saul, has never heard of Samuel, knows nothing of all of what he's done in the land. Think about this now. This is at the end of Samuel's life, near the end. He's ruled for almost 40 years. The whole story of how he got the job back when he saved the Israelites from the Philistines, you would think that would be common knowledge, but of course that happened before Saul was born. So in the time since he's been alive, either Saul has been so isolated and kept so busy with his father's affairs that he hasn't kept up with current affairs, or he's remarkably naive... Or maybe that says something about Samuel's impact in the land over the last 20 years, that maybe his role has become uh, a little less prominent within the people. In any case, you would think that perhaps his lack of awareness of who the prophet of the land was might disqualify him from public service. Would you want to elect someone who doesn't know who the current president is? It's that kind of distance from the affairs of running state that you're, you're now thinking of vesting him with the authority to run the whole place. 
One commentator observed that Saul was hunting for donkeys and found a kingdom, while a prophet went hunting for a king and found a man ignorant of political affairs. On this day, the Lord ensures that they come together, they would find one another, and he does so as Samuel is preparing to officiate at a high place altar. Verse 15. Now a day before Saul's coming, this is going back a day here in time, now a day before Saul's coming, the Lord had revealed this to Samuel, saying, About this time tomorrow I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you will anoint him to be prince over my people Israel, and he will deliver my people from the hand of the Philistines, for I have regarded my people, because their cry has come to me. When Samuel saw Saul, the Lord said to him, Behold, the man of whom I spoke to you, this one shall rule over my people. Then Saul approached Samuel in the gate and said, Please tell me where the seer's house is. Samuel answered Saul and said, I am the seer. Go up before me to the high place, for you shall eat with me today. And in the morning I will let you go and will tell you all that is on your mind. As for your donkeys, which were lost three days ago, do not set your mind on them, for they have been found. And for whom is all that is desirable in Israel? Is it not for you and for all your father's household? Saul replied, Am I not a Benjamite of the smallest of the tribes of Israel and my family the least of all the families of the tribe of Benjamin? Why then do you speak to me in this way? Scenes like this are so interesting to me because they scream of God's sovereignty, don't they? All the ways he's orchestrating the events, putting people in connection to one another, telling people in advance it's going to happen, all of these details, right? Every step Samuel and Saul took over the last two days of the story, they took of their own accord, right? Or so they supposed. Saul walked 35 miles looking for wayward donkeys. Samuel was on his regular circuit performing his sacrificial services for the people. They're just going about their business. And yet, we can tell now, the Lord was sovereignly, carefully moving them so that on this day, they would meet. And neither knows they're looking for the other. As Proverbs says, 16.9, The mind of man plans his ways, but the Lord directs his steps. So the day before Saul even arrives in this town, the Lord is telling Samuel, here's what's going to happen. He names as a Benjamite. He says he's going to find you. He says, this is the guy you're going to anoint. Samuel knows all this is going to happen, but he doesn't know who it is, but he has to be ready. And Saul knows even less. Of course, Saul doesn't even know this is coming. In fact, the Lord is telling Samuel to expect this visit even before Saul has determined to go into that city. day earlier, he's still on the trek looking for donkeys. He doesn't know where he's going yet, yet the Lord already knows he's going to be in this city the next day. Which means every detail of Saul's day had to have been under God's control. It's all coming together just as God needed it to. You might say to yourself, well, God didn't control it. God just knew this was going to happen. No, that's just crazy talk because then you have one of the greatest coincidences on the face of the planet that Samuel and Saul would happen to be in the same city on that day, right? It doesn't make sense that it even happened except that the Lord could make it happen. So that's where we get into trouble if we confuse foreknowledge with predestination. God is predetermining all of these things so that they happen. Then he's also telling people in advance so that they know it's from him. So everything is under God's control here. As we like to say, there's no such thing as a coincidence in God's creation. So God's instructions to Samuel come out. And there's that interesting element of mercy in the way he speaks to Samuel. He says, I'm going to anoint this man to be king over Israel. And then I'm going to use him to free Israel from the Philistines because they've cried out for that. So even though they've rejected the Lord, what you see in this is the Lord remains faithful. This is a classic example of Romans 8.28. He's turning all things to good. In the sense that he took a sinful request, which ends up in a very bad outcome for the people in terms of what they get, and he uses it to good nonetheless to free them from the Philistines. And though they will regret having a king in the end, 
He's still going to work through this man. God is still going to rule through this man. This pattern of hearing the people cry, then freeing them through some kind of deliverer, that's classic to Judges. That's what's been going on for the whole of the book of Judges. It's just going to continue now in its final cycle, but now through a king. Then Samuel sees Saul, and the Lord, just to make double sure that Samuel doesn't miss him, says, that's the guy right there. (laughs) Saul asks Samuel, hey, uh, do you know where there's a seer around here? So clearly, it reminds us, Saul does not know who Samuel is at all. Samuel tells Saul, it's me, and we're going to spend some quality time together. And to convince Saul that Samuel can help, in other words, to get past the moment in which he expects Saul to say, well, how do I know you're the seer? He just launches right into it. Oh, I know, you've been looking for donkeys for three days. Uh, Don't worry, we found them already. All of that is simply proof of my prophetic ability, and now you need to listen to what else I have to say, right? That's classically the way God uses prophets. Prophets are given a word that can be demonstrated as supernatural so that from that point forward they have your attention for more important things. But then Samuel drops his bombshell on Saul. He says, isn't everything desirable in Israel appointed for you and your household? Now that doesn't sound very specific to us. It almost sounds kind of a weird thing to say, right? It doesn't specifically say you're going to become king, but it implies that. And you can see that his words aren't lost on Saul because Saul has this great response. He's incredulous. He's like, how could that be that you would tell me I would be number one? I'm the least tribe, least in the family of the tribes, etc. And all that's true. So in terms of human standards and priorities, how could he ever expect to be in a position to receive such honor? Because by human standards, he was ineligible to receive that kind of honor. But that's, of course, discounting what God can do. And God was prepared to do it for him. Verse 22. Then Samuel took Saul and his servant and brought them into the hall and gave them a place at the head of those who were invited, who were about 30 men. Samuel said to the cook, Bring the portion that I gave you concerning which I said to you, set it aside. Then the cook took up the leg with what was on it and set it before Saul. And Samuel said, Here is what has been reserved. Set it before you and eat, because it has been kept for you until the appointed time, since I said I have invited the people. So Saul ate with Samuel that day. When they came down from the high place into the city, Samuel spoke with Saul on the roof. And they arose early, and at daybreak Samuel called to Saul on the roof, saying, Get up, that I may send you away. So Saul arose, and both he and Samuel went out into the street. As they were going down to the edge of the city, Samuel said to Saul, Say to the servant that he might go ahead of us and pass on, but you remain standing now, that I may proclaim the word of God to you. You see what Samuel was thinking because it appears as though Samuel had prepared ahead of time because of what the Lord had told him the day before that he needed to have something ready for a future king who was going to come into the city that day. So he finds 30 men, probably the elders of the land of that tribal area or, or elsewhere. He called them to come for this big banquet. He has a hall prepared, some place of which they could meet. He has this feast prepared. He sold the cook ahead of time, take the very best portion, set it aside, I'll tell you when I need it. It's going to be reserved for someone special. He's had all the men sit at the table. Notice the one seat that's not occupied at the table. The head of the table has been left empty. And you've got to wonder, do all these guys even know it's coming? This is all to simply demonstrate that Samuel is so confident in the Lord's word that he would make all of this effort come and he has no fear of being disappointed. He's completely set up expecting what the Lord will do. And then as Saul comes and greets Samuel, the response then from Samuel is, you need to come, I have something prepared for you. And then, of course, everything happens after that. He puts him at the head of the table, gives him the best portion. Can you imagine what Saul is thinking? He must have been thinking he's dreaming the whole time, right? Or else he's suspicious this is some grand practical joke. 
Like, when does his dad show up with the donkeys? And, you know, something, right? What's going on in his head? It's like he's hit the lottery and he didn't even play. And then it says they return to the city and they have this private discussion. When it says they sit on the roof, in this place in the world, it's hot. And so you want breeze and you get up on top of the roof because that's where the breezes are at night. So you sit up on top. It's also private. And so if you want to have a private evening discussion somewhere, you can imagine brandy and cigars or something. They're sitting up on top of this place, just the two of them, and they're talking. Wouldn't you love to have heard that conversation? Samuel explaining that the Lord had selected you to be a king and why that was happening and you're the first monarch of our people and Saul trying to figure this out, asking questions of trying to understand how it all happened to him. At the end of the chapter... The next morning we see Samuel preparing to anoint Saul as king. Next time we'll pick up here in the next chapter where the anointing takes place. It's a private moment. He sends the others away and the anointing takes place from this point forward. Now you're going to have, as the story goes from here, the movement of a nation into monarchy under a man who, it seems, starts well. And then, of course, we'll, we'll see the progression. The rest of the book of Samuel is largely dedicated, almost exclusively so, to the rise of Samuel with a secondary, major secondary story of the rise of David. I'm sorry, Saul. Sorry. The rise of Saul as king with that secondary story of Daniel coming on the scene. Daniel. So the rise of David after that is, is what we find next. So it doesn't really matter what I say. You know what I'm saying. It's late. Yeah. Daniel, David, Saul, Samuel. What's the difference? Let's pray. Father, thank you, Lord, for, uh, for reminding us, Father, that we shouldn't judge with our eyes. And yet so often that's all we have if we rely on ourselves. That's, that's where we're going to go every time. Lord, thank you for the counsel of your word so that we wouldn't be left alone with our, our own judgment. Thank you for revealing things to us, Father, in ways that let us um, follow you and not ourselves. And uh, I pray, Father, that in the, the ways we can influence others and be a light to this world, Father, that you would uh, let us understand how we are misjudging others or misjudging ourselves, considering ourselves to be greater than we are, worrying about our appearance so that we might impress others. Let us worry about our hearts, Father, and I pray by the word that you would give us hearts that desire to to please you and not men and represent you to a world that needs to know you. Let the word tonight, Father, be counsel to our hearts for that outcome. Thank you for this study. Bring us back next week, Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.